turn to James chapter 3. That's where we are. In case you were wondering, uh, either Rob said something exceedingly offensive to all the youth in our church, or plan B, actually they are heading out this morning down to St. James Park, downtown San Jose, and as part of our youth, they usually join us for worship every single week, but when there's a fifth Sunday, which was last week, which they didn't do it last week, they're doing it this week, they go out and serve. They just take the worship part of it, and they they worship God by being in the community serving in some way, shape, or form. So they'll be in St. James Park this morning. They had made some meals, and they've tucked scripture inside of fresh, clean socks and some different things to hand out to some of the homeless people that that live out there. So uh, we can be in prayer for them as they're out just rubbing shoulders with some people from San Jose that usually aren't in our church. So they're bringing church to them this morning. So that's where they all went. They are not offended by hymns. Don't worry. This morning, we've been singing about and we'll be talking about wisdom and looking at that. And if you look at every single religion of the world... Every religion offers an idea about wisdom. They have a truth claim about wisdom. But beyond that, even if you don't have a religion, if you say that I'm not religious, that's a worldview, and you have a path to wisdom. You have an idea. You are making a truth claim about wisdom. Even someone who comes along and says, well, I think there should be no wisdom. I think you can't know anything. That, in fact, is a truth claim, and that is their wisdom that they are walking in. So as we start this morning, just realize that every single person has an idea about about what wisdom is. Some of them feel really, really foreign to us. I'm going to show you a few pictures. These might be some more more foreign ones to you and I, because we've grown up where we've grown up. Some of them might feel a little bit more familiar, though, and we don't maybe recognize them as such, but these are, these are truth claims, and these are, these are things people lean on for wisdom and for guidance and for how do I get through my life. And we could add daily horoscopes. We could add all kinds of things. Some are overtly religious and include a deity or a god. Some are overtly, uh, or some are more subtle, and they don't include a deity or god, but that is their wisdom. They're walking in a path that says, I'm not going to include Uh, the supernatural. I'm not going to include God in this picture. Now, as we're in James, if you're in James, you can look at the last part of chapter 3. That's where we'll be. We'll be finishing up chapter 3 this week. And we've been talking about the tongue. And and in some ways, there's there's a scene shift here where James is writing along about the tongue, very practical. We've looked at it for two weeks now. Someone, uh, someone came and talked to me after the message last week. They said, they said, I was convicted about this from the previous week, and then we stayed on the tongue for a whole other week. I've got to tell you this right now. And we talked about it, and it, it was great. That's just, that's just the word of God that kind of stirs in our heart and soul, and we act on it. It was really kind of a neat conversation. But here the scene shifts now, uh, almost without, without notice. It's, it's going from taming the untamable tongue to, to kind of these battling wisdoms. James is going to set up for us two kinds of wisdom. And as I was reading this, especially with our Old West theme of James here that we've been talking about, it kind of feels like an Old West showdown to me a little bit. There's kind of like good versus evil. It's this duel of sorts, this wisdom, and it's really clearly painted. You know, here's one kind of wisdom. And in this corner is a wisdom that's born from, from the fallen dirt of this earth, right? And then in this corner is a different kind of wisdom that is, in fact, supernatural, as in outside of the physical. It's otherworldly. It's heavenly. And James is going to paint this for us in a couple of brief verses. Follow along as I read James 3, starting in verse 13. It says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James puts forth this question this morning to us. Who is wise among you? In essence, he's saying, take a look around. Who's wise? Identify yourself. Step forward. Now, I'm not going to step forward this morning for myself. We just came back from a week of camping, and we decided, we thought, you know, if toddlers aren't sleeping well in the comfort of their own home, why don't we bring them into a pop-up tent trailer for a week and see how that goes over? And uh, we've got nice, fine weather here in San Jose, but instead, let's go not see the sun and be in utter moisture for an entire week right near Sunset Beach. Um, and, and so, uh, right now, I'm a little bit sleep-deprived. I'll just let you know that. So, extra grace. We just sing about grace falling like rain. A little bit of extra grace might be needed. Um, but we actually had a really good time. Uh, but many around us, I'm sure, didn't, didn't think we were wise in, in doing what we were doing. James echoes this truth as he talks about different kinds of wisdom. And I'm going to use wisdom and wisdom, and I'm not going to mean the same thing, and you'll kind of catch along, uh, follow along with, with what I'm saying. In what's called the wisdom literature, uh, there's, there's the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs um, identifies kind of two characters early on. In fact, chapters 1 through 9 talk about, they kind of personify wisdom. And there's a second character, though. There's not just wisdom, but there's also folly. And uh, parents, this is something I tell parents all the time. Early and often, introduce your children to these characters in the Bible. They're right there. Introduce them to wisdom. Introduce them to folly. And as they're going through their school day, as you're going through your work week, you will just begin to see this. If you flood your mind with these scriptures, you'll begin to see, wow, that's wisdom in, in, in action right there. Wow, that's the picture of folly. I read about you in chapter 4 today. That's exactly what that's talking about. And so when we're talking about wisdom, we're not just talking about wisdom to accept, but there's also a wisdom to reject and avoid. And I would use that in kind of quotations a false wisdom, and that's what James is going to get really, really explicit about for us um, in a second here. Uh, Wisdom is required for a kingdom, and Jesus spoke of a new kingdom. He was ushering in a new supernatural kingdom. Therefore, there was a wisdom that was supernatural that went along with that kingdom. If you've traveled to a foreign country recently, we have our Mexico team back, by the way, or at least many of them. I heard there was sickness near the end, Uh, but there's a great blog. If you've been on the city, you can follow along with this. Uh, Where's Wendy at? Thank you, Wendy, for keeping us posted on all that's gone on. Uh, It turns out that Zumba has now been brought to the orphanage in Mexico. So thank you, Nicole. So sorry I missed that. Uh, Really, I am. Not, I'm, I'm not actually, but no, I'm kidding. Uh, but it, they had a great trip, and, uh, and it was, it's awesome to have you, guys, have you guys back. But if you travel to a foreign country, a year ago I was prepping to go to Ethiopia, and for the first time going to a foreign country you've never been to before, you have to kind of, you know, learn some things. But think about wisdom versus knowledge a little bit here. It's not just knowledge that you need. Going to a foreign country, for instance, I could read up on Lonely Planets books and, and get all the study guides and learn a bunch of facts about that country, right? And I could go around knowing that stuff. It may not help me one bit while I'm in that country. 
It's actually more than language, too. I could learn a few words. Uh, I could learn the entire language. But even that's not enough. It's not enough to speak in the language of something. That's not necessarily just wisdom. And it's not even just experience. It's not just that you go there and therefore you got along great and you're now, you're now wise to that culture or to that country. There are a lot of well-seasoned, well-traveled, older people who are not wise. They've lived a lot of experience. If it was just experience, that means every old person would automatically be wise. That's not true. There are some that are wise, right? But there are others who maybe have followed a path of folly. They've experienced all kinds of stuff, but they still lack wisdom. Wisdom is being able to apply knowledge and words to real life in real time for good. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but we'll kind of take that concept and unpack it here a little bit. As we would expect from James, James isn't going to say that wisdom is something that you say or something that you put on and just, and just have. It's actually shown in your lifestyle. And he kind, of, he kind of goes right back to a message that he's been saying all along in this letter so far, that it's moral versus just intellectual. If you go with the Greek form of thought, it's intellectual in nature. The more knowledge that you have, the more wise you would be thought to have. It's this guy, right? It's the guy sitting here who's read a lot, he's thought a lot, he's got a lot in his head, right? You know some really, really, really smart people that you wouldn't characterize as wise, right? You'd look at them and say, they have an incredible capacity for knowledge, but they're not wise. Rob just said he enjoyed David, his son, hanging around his uncle. You, you want your children, you want to be around wise people. You don't want them to be around really, really smart people who are filled with folly or who are not wise. So some of the wisest people you might know may have barely graduated high school, right? But there's a wisdom there. So it doesn't always align one-to-one. Let me just point out some examples that we've already seen in James. If you turn your Bible one page uh, to the left, maybe, you'll probably get to chapter 2, or if you have microprint, it might be still on the same page you're on. But look at chapter 1. Chapter 1, he's talking about trials and pain and hardship. Let's take earthly wisdom and apply it to that. Let's take wisdom from above and apply it to that, okay? I'm going to run through these fairly quickly, but we can take these wisdoms and already see what James is showing us. Earthly wisdom says this about pain and trials. Why me? How long do I have to be in this? How do I get out of this now? How do I ensure that I never have to do this again? Right? That's, that's earthly wisdom. And that's natural and fleshly, but wisdom from above might say something like this, according to chapter 1. Father, it is my joy to be shaped into the tool that you need me to be. Don't keep me in this trial and this pain any longer than I have to be. But I trust you, and I'll joyfully be in this knowing that you have me in your hand. Amen. That's a different kind of wisdom than an earthly wisdom. Uh, it goes on to talk about worldly wealth and status. And the fact that God actually chooses the, the poor and the have not so often in this world. Not exclusively. But an earthly mindset would say this to wealth and to status of the day. I'm set. I've got it made. Now, my focus is how do I stay here? How do I keep all my stuff my stuff? Right? 
That's an earthly wisdom mindset. The striving to keep it once we have it. Whether that be status or stuff. Wisdom from above would say this. All good gifts are from God. Like Job, we might echo, sometimes the Lord gives, sometimes he takes away. Like Paul, we'd say, I'm learning to be content with whatever I have. You know what my true riches are? My true riches are in heaven. My true status, my identity, that's locked and secure. That got settled 2,000 years ago on the cross. I'm set. Different. Earthly wisdom, wisdom from above. Moves on to partiality, chapter 2. How do you accept people? How do you look at other people? Here's earthly wisdom. You're different, therefore you're a threat. Go away. Okay, now that's a little harsh. I know some people put a little bit of a veneer on that. But in essence, that's a lot of it. And there's a lot of suspicion there. A wisdom from above might say something like this. You are made to reflect and praise a great God. You may not even know that, but that's what you are. You're made in the image of God. Of God. Therefore, by that one fact alone, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bestow that on you and give that to you. Now, what a great God we have that right now, as I look at our relatively small church, I see great diversity. I say, what a, what a great and creative God that he would take and fit together the bride of Christ in such a way that we all look and, and act and talk slightly different, don't we? And yet God sees that as something great. Let me give you one more. He's been talking a lot about speech. Earthly wisdom says this. I must tell people about me. I must use my words to get my way. I must use my words to manipulate and control the situation. If that calls for words or calls for me not saying anything, that's how I'm going to use my speech. A wisdom from above would say this. Recognize that the tongue is full of evil. And speech is one of the easiest and most diverse ways to sin. Therefore, I will be slow to speak. Therefore, I will take my tongue and I will, by the grace of God, bring it into submission to his will and I will use it to praise his name. I will use it to proclaim a message of salvation through the gospel and I will use it to bless other people. Two totally different wisdoms at work just in the book of James already. Now, these two paths lead into two opposite directions. Let's take a look at earthly wisdom. If you take earthly wisdom and follow it like a road, it will lead you somewhere. And James lays that out for us. First of all, look at verse 14. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. It's talking about the motivation that's behind this kind of earthly wisdom. It's the very opposite of the gracious others first spirit that exemplify Jesus Christ and comes to characterize the followers of Jesus Christ. There's a winsomeness and a graciousness that says, that says others first. But rather the wisdom of this age would say that there's jealousy and rivalry and selfish ambition. Now this is evident everywhere. I don't even need to go into a ton of examples of this. I think we can just see this, right? We recognize this around us, this kind of, of wisdom. It's self-promoting. Now, there's so many new tools to share your opinion. And I don't know that it's helped us a whole bunch, right? Um, now, if you are an athlete or, or a celebrity of some sort, A, you track how many followers you have. I, I heard someone yesterday, uh, or on the Olympics, it's, it's a week old because we're behind. Um, but he was talking about the idea that this one British uh, you know, diver, I think, had this many number of Twitter followers. And just to put it in perspective, Michael Phelps has this many. I'm thinking, who cares? You know, like... 
Um, but, but there's endless ways now to, to spout off your opinion and immediately let everyone in on your ignorance, right? And it fuels rivalry. And so much of it fuels self-promotion. Facebook's not a bad thing. I'm on Facebook. I, I think there's a great connecting aspect to it. But there's also a component to it that just flaunts who you are and what you're about and kind of putting out there to the world this, this kind of veneer, right? When it was first being used, I remember college kids were using it. And they're like, you know, I'm brushing my teeth right now. And I go, I just didn't, I don't need to know that. Like, that's not important information to me. I'm thrilled that you're brushing your teeth. I promise you that. Continue. It's a good practice. But don't tell me about it. I just, I don't need to know that. If we're camping together, I'll notice it. Um, so, so we see this in, pol- we're moving into a political season, right? In, in politics, we see this all the time, this rivalry, this back and forth that's, that's just going to go on. What's it doing? It's posturing. It's shoving down others to try to get to the top. It's the same nonsense we saw on the school ground. It's the same stuff we see. It's just, it's just now done with millions of dollars behind it. And it's so instantaneous because people are pouring out and going, oh, look what, look what so-and-so just said. And, and so it's, it's all right there. It is inevitable, as in a foregone conclusion, that earthly wisdom is self-centered. It is a foregone conclusion that earthly wisdom is self-centered. It creates a world where personal ideas personal desires, and personal standards measure everything. And anything that comes along and supports that, agrees with that, helps promote that, A-OK, you're a friend. I'm going to allow you in. Anything, though, that comes along and contradicts that or undermines that or rips that apart or challenges that is seen as a threat and a foe. I'm going to attack that. That's threatening to me. Now, just think about this. Just with a group our size here this morning, if every single one of us is doing that, right, with our own personal desires, our own personal standards, just, just the great chaos that will come about. We just read about that that's, 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 that's coming from that. As we each have our own individual standard of these kinds of things. Now, let me just show you three characteristics that James lays out uh, of what this wisdom is. And he's, once again, doesn't pull many punches. Um, Notice how these correspond to these, these three great enemies of the believer that we find elsewhere in Scripture. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? Watch this. The first one is that worldly wisdom, earthly wisdom, is earthly. He says it's earthly. It's of the world. The wisdom of this world is limited to time and space, meaning whatever we can discover, whatever we can theorize with our senses, whatever we can accomplish is what our wisdom is limited to. Before mass travel, we might begin to think that the whole world exists with what I've experienced. There are still probably tribes in Brazil that would think that way, right? They're in the jungles, and they see a great bird that flies over once in a while that that looks white and shinier than other birds and makes a lot of noise. Um, But otherwise, that's their world. That's their wisdom. That might be a little microcosm picture of what it might look like for us on this globe. Because what we see and what we experience is what our wisdom is limited to. That which is outside of this world is resented or outright rejected. For instance, the supernatural in many circles is seen as suspect and and rejected outright. This was true in Jesus' day. The Sadducees, who said there was no resurrection and didn't believe in miracles, fought often with the Pharisees. There was arguments going back and forth. So this is an age-old problem. 
Look at the screen for a second. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, written by Solomon, the wisest man in the world. And he wrote this book from a perspective of under the sun. So he wrote this book as if all we have to to go on is by what's here on earth. And here is what he says in chapter 2. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. What's the event? It's death. Verse 15, then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated my life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after the wind. I don't know if you've ever read any existential philosophers. Maybe you did in college. Maybe it's been a while. But that's exactly what this sounds like. It's learning and learning and learning. And while everyone else is playing, I'm learning. And then you learn so much, you get to this place where you go, for what? I mean, that guy just died and he learned a ton more than me. I'll never get to his level. And this guy says, under the sun, this view under the sun, I hated my life, even though I pursued all this wisdom. He says it's earthly. He also says it's natural, as in of the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Here's the flesh. False wisdom originates and finds its fulfillment, catch this, in the fallen nature of mankind. The fallen nature of mankind is wholly corrupt and in rebellion to God. As I thought about this idea that the, that the wisdom that is earthly is driven by desires and appetites and, and things of the flesh, not just sensual in nature, but just all things of the flesh, is it any wonder that a Christian is going to go through this life always feeling out of step with those around them? Always having this deep longing and this deep sense This world is not my home. I'm talking with people, but there's not an understanding. I'm walking with people and some things, but but there's just this this conflict that's there. My son and I were having a conversation about Christians, and I was talking to him about some different things, and and he was saying that you know a girl at his school had made this comment that that Christians have a conflict problem, that they argue with a lot of people. And so we were were talking about that a little bit, and and we we landed on this conclusion that some people do just because they're mean people. They're not doing it in a gracious spirit. They're, they're not exuding Christ at all. But, but many Christians would say, yeah, I, I feel it. I sense that. I don't long for and run around and want to pick a fight with people. But I've got deep convictions. I know what's true. God's opened my eyes to things. And when you're running around like Noah saying, a flood is coming. Get in this giant boat. It doesn't make a lot of sense. When yesterday the flood didn't come, and the previous week there was no rain, and in the forecast it's nothing but sunshine. It's hard for people to get their heads around that. And a giant boat? You want me to put my faith in what you built in a boat? Come on. So there's, a, there's an ongoing sense for Christians that we will be in conflict with the natural. 
Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Did you hear that? They are not able to understand them. Christian. No Christian would sit high and mighty and say, I've got so much more wisdom than anyone else, as if we uncovered it ourselves. Every Christian would realize, you know what? My eyes had scales on them, thick as could be. I was blind as a bat going through life, but for the grace of God who opened my eyes and called me to himself. Therefore, with mercy and compassion, we would want to lead others who are lost home to the Father. But in these conversations, when you're talking with people and it feels like you're talking like this, understand that what's going on is spiritual in nature. There's a spiritual component. That's why, as our kids right now are in St. James Park, it's a spiritual battlefield. They're, they're just on the front lines of a spiritual battlefield right now. I've been praying for them this morning as they're heading out. God, would you allow those who are going to receive a bag of food from some fresh-faced kid who doesn't know what it's like to live on the street, would you allow them to peel back and see the picture, to see the love of Christ somehow coming through those kids to you? Because those are natural, fleshly minds and hearts, probably, that are receiving this. And they won't be discerned unless, God, you reveal it. Mexico, when you go off on a missions trip, you're praying, saying, God, unless you go and build this house, it's a fool's errand that, that, that we're going down there. The person you're praying for and witnessing to, your conversations, your brilliant arguments, more facts is not what's needed. It's a spiritual transformation that goes on. Now, what happens when this creeps into, this, into the church? That decisions are made, that wisdom is followed, that, that follows the appetites and the desires of those in charge. It's pretty clear to note from our own church history in general that this is true. It's also clear in Scripture because so much of Scripture is written to talk about this. Um, just, a little bit of, uh, just a little bit of history lesson for, for this building. This building's been here for, I think, almost 50 years now. And there was a church meeting here who had been dwindling down, and they exuded the wisdom of God in this matter. They said, you know what? We're sitting on a piece of property in the Silicon Valley. The economy at that time was good. They could have taken that and sold it if their hearts were for selfish ambition. They could have sold the property, made a bundle of cash, and gone off somewhere. You know, what they, you know what they decided? You know what the leaders of that church decided? They said, this place needs to remain in the kingdom of God. This location needs to remain a lighthouse in this community. So praise God, they walked in the way of wisdom. They sought the Savior, and they began to look and say, who could we partner with? Who could we, who could we work with? Now, when they approached Valley Church, where I was a, one of the pastors at, at the time, um, we had been praying for years about planting a church, about expanding what was going on with that ministry. When we came across this opportunity and the things God may have been lining up with this property, uh, one of the other pastors, Kurt Jones, and I got on an airplane. We flew to Orlando, Florida. There was a church planning conference going on there, and we wanted to glean some information and some wisdom from some people. So we went to a four-day conference. 
Let me tell you, as we landed in Orlando, Kurt and I were there. We were, we were, we were deep in prayer about this, saying, God, we want to we wanna go and do what you would want to have us go and do with all of this. We're wide open. It's, it's, it's your church. You build it. Help us glean from this conference. Let me tell you what I heard at the conference. There were sessions on funding, branding, which is your logo and your look and tying that into your messaging, uh, funding, branding, who your target audience was, how to build the right team and the team players that you need, promotion, and to have an incredibly tight launch rollout plan. Silicon Valley dweller, what does this sound like to you? Yeah, that could be any startup in the Silicon Valley, right? Any of them. It literally took two days at this conference. Two days for the Holy Spirit to be mentioned. That's a problem. That's a huge problem. Listen to Jude. Jude 19. It is, though, it is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Now, I am not branding that entire conference that way at all. God allowed us to see a lot of things, but frankly, a lot of it was what we didn't want. We rejected a lot of that. We'd leave a session. We'd go sit at Starbucks because it was the only place with air conditioning that would let us hang out for hours. And Florida in April, you want that. And we would sit with our Bibles open and Starbucks napkins out, and we would just sit there and go, okay, let's look at the Scriptures. God, you have to lead us. Because we're gleaning a whole bunch about a target audience and who Church Sam is and all this. But God, you have to lead this. There's a wisdom that can creep into the church that looks awfully spiritual, but it's earthly just like the rest. Look at the third describer, uh, descriptor of this. It's demonic. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Do you see these three lining up with, these, with, with the descriptors of this wisdom? Um, it's of the devil. Satan promises wisdom to those that he is tempting. Here's essentially what he says. Trust my word and doubt God's word. God said this, but I say this. Trust me. This is what happened in the garden. Did God really say, come on? And this is what happened with Jesus in the wilderness when he was being tempted, right? What did Satan come and do? He came and said, trust my word. He even used scripture. Heads up. In a Christian context, demonic activity can be going on. And I would say is rampantly going on in a Christian context. It continues today. It wasn't just relegated to the garden and to Jesus in the wilderness. Look at the, uh, the, the destruction of this creeping into the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He goes on to say in verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond 
to their deeds. You know what the message is for us, church? We have a fight on our hands. We have a fight on our hands. Every week, at least, someone is going to stand up here in front of you and stand up as a teacher in a formal teaching role, teaching you the ways of God. Do you know how much destruction and folly has gone on with people standing in front of another group of people saying, thus saith the Lord? And people who have no experience and no familiarity with what God says or what He even would say or how He speaks or the manner in which He would say it blindly follow along because a church leader got up and said, drink some Kool-Aid. Right? What if years before someone had stood up and offered some accountability in a public, in a, in a public way saying, wait a minute, that's not what the Scriptures teach. So none of us are immune from this. We have a fight on our hands to look at this and say, does this jive with Scripture? What were the Bereans known for in the Scriptures long before there was a Christian bookstore? What was it? Tell me. Huh? They searched the Scripture daily. What were they doing specifically? Yeah, they were checking it out. I don't think they had the spirit of, I want to sit here and just, and just you know, you didn't use a comma in your sentence structure there. It wasn't that. It, it, was, it was, we want to make sure this is accurate. We, we don't want to be duped by just anyone. We don't want to readily accept a different Jesus being proclaimed. You ever had a different Jesus proclaimed to you? I have. I've had people come and proclaim a different spirit to me. And I've tested it according to 1 John. I've said, wow, that's, that's not the spirit that I've accepted. 1 Timothy 4.1 says this, Now the Spirit expressly says, listen to this, In later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Do you think these are good Christian people who decide to leave their church for the demonic church down the street? No. You don't just go join a satanic small group one day. This is in the church. This is people who who weasel their way in and with earthly, natural, demonic wisdom disguised as angels of light lead astray. Do you see why it's important for you to be in the Word daily? Not just for your own spiritual nourishment. Don't eat one meal a day. I hope you don't feel sickly through the week and wait for another meal on, on Sunday. But beyond that, for the sake of you and your own soul, for the sake of your loved ones and those that you care about and those that are in your charge, be in the Scriptures daily. Let's guard one another. Let's walk with one another. 2 Timothy 3 says times won't get any better. It says evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Just write this down. Write down 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. We're not going to take the time to read about it here. But just read it. Because there's so many things in the Scriptures that just point to things that look an awful lot like the days that we live in right now. I got on a conversation yesterday with a guy. I looked like a pirate. I had a week's worth of beard that was all unkept and my hair was all crazy. And he's seen me a bunch before looking a little bit more normal. And we were talking a little bit about, about camping. And he knew I just went camping. He said, I'm going to go, about, you know, I'm going to go out camping. And then his comment was this. I, I, you know, he was going beach camping. I asked if he surfed. We got talking about this and that. And here was the extent of what he was looking for for three days of camping with his buddies. Ready? Here it was. Beer. 
It's mostly just me and my buddies, so there'll just be a lot of beer. And I just felt kind of deflated for this, like, probably 20-year-old guy. I'm going, are you serious? Like, that's all that you're going to get out of San Diego beach camping? You're just going to go and party and just, and just let that run its course. That's it. That's shooting pretty low. That's staying right down here with just some kind of, kind of base appetites that you have. Man, there's more to this life. All right, let's look at some results. What are the results of this kind of wisdom? He says it in verse 16. Look at it. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It's like James pulled out his broadest brush and said, let me paint it with these words. Every vile practice. That's what's going to come of this. That's where this road of wisdom leads. You get people all the time calling you to the path of wisdom. I found it. It's over here. In fact, you'll get a lot of people sometimes, right? Broad is the path that leads to what? Destruction. When you see that, there ought to be a little something in you that says, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if all these people are on the right path. You ought to guard yourself. These broad terms include at least the following sin. Anger and bitterness and resentment and lawsuits and divorce and racial and ethnic and social and economic divisions. All manner of sexual perversion and miscellaneous dysfunction. How's that for a bucket list? Right? That's where this goes. That's where it goes if we live life under the sun. I wonder if like Solomon we would end up hating our life, despairing for life and saying, what's it all mean after all of that? This leads to our cowboys dumb for the morning. Conflict follows wrongdoing as surely as flies follow the herd. That's where this goes. You want to know where earthly wisdom leads in a marriage? You want to know where earthly wisdom leads in a family? You want to know where it leads... In the, in the workplace, this is where it ends up ultimately. It ends up in these kinds of places. What's missing, of course, is love and intimacy and trust and fellowship and unity. Here's a little preview for next week. Next week we start chapter 4. Chapter 4 is all about conflict. James takes this wisdom and he overlays it to this topic of conflict. He applies wisdom from above to all the conflict that's going on down here below. All right, let's shift gears here and talk about wisdom from above. In contrast to earthly wisdom of this age is heavenly wisdom. It's celebrated throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you just one reference. Psalm 104, 24 says this. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Wisdom, of course, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 3 says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and and knowledge, a reason to stay close to Jesus in the scriptures and in the spirit and in life is because he is the path of wisdom for us. But here's what's interesting. The wisdom of Jesus isn't all that celebrated or recognized as godly by the masses today. Would you agree with that? It hasn't changed since the days he walked here. Listen to this. This is from Matthew 13. Uh, catch that this isn't even recognized as godly or good. His wisdom, while it was here on earth, not even recognized as from God. 
Matthew 15, 54 says this, Coming to his hometown, Jesus, he began, to teach, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And then it says this, and they took offense at him. Their wisdom was put on display by their questions, wasn't it? They didn't recognize godly wisdom, divine wisdom coming from God because they were in a natural state. The natural mind doesn't perceive the supernatural. That's given by God. It's a gift of God. And they took offense at him. Why did they take offense at him? Because God's wisdom is always at odds with our sinful self. Didn't the gospel rub you the wrong way before you submitted to it and received it? Some of you got saved later on in life, and you remember distinctly not liking what you were hearing, but it wouldn't let you go. And like a splinter in your mind, you, you kept thinking about it, going, I wonder if that's true. But no, it's not true. Why? Because you've built a whole lifetime of building up this way of thinking and what's true and what you're going after. And that can't all be wrong, right? And at some point, God opened your eyes to it. I think the cross might be the absolute pinnacle of showing that wisdom from above is utter folly to the natural mind. And yet even at the cross, as you have Jesus doing exactly the opposite of what the natural fleshly mind and heart and wisdom would call out for, which is curse those who curse you, what's Jesus doing from the cross? Forgiving and blessing those who are executing Him. Right? Even at the cross, you had some that sneered and laughed and mocked to His death. And you had some that witnessed what was going on. And by the grace of God, had soft hearts and eyes to see and ears to hear what was really happening. And like a veil being torn away, one of the thieves on the cross who earlier in the day, read your gospel, was hurling insults at Jesus. Converted, changed his mind, repented, went the other way. One of the centurions witnessing this whole thing, who's seen a lot of death in his day, I would imagine, watches the scene unfold and says, surely this was the Son of God. So you'll always have a mixed reaction from that. All right, let's look quickly at the motivation, James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. The deepest longing in the heart of a child of God is this, to be like their father. Son, daughter of God, you've been roped into the family. You have a longing. It's an inbred longing to be pure like your father. Listen to 1 John 3.2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. A child of God can't live in sin any longer. A child of God struggles with sin. But like Paul, we say, the very thing I don't want to do find myself falling into. I find myself being duped. I find myself battling. And these things that I long to do, I long for purity and holiness. I don't just naturally walk in that. 
when we sin, when we fall, Christian, we're not comfortable with it. We don't make peace with it. We run to the promise of 1 John 1.9. We confess our sin. We believe in the one who's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. And then we start again. And that's why we sing with conviction songs like Grace Like Rain and songs about the cross that there's room enough for me. He then goes on to list seven characteristics. Let me, let me touch on them briefly. These seven listed here sound an awful lot like the Beatitudes. In fact, if you were to read this passage and have a second Bible open or a second screen open next to it with the Beatitudes, you would just see them ticking off very similar. Many of these go right hand in hand. Here they are. The first one is that it's peaceable. Wisdom from above is, is peaceable. Truly wise people don't perpetuate conflict out of their own pride, but out of their own humility, they strive for peace. And you've watched people, certain people have a way of bringing two warring people together that you say, they'll never talk it out. And you can watch the divine wisdom that has the attribute of peace-loving come along and be applied to a situation and go, wow, that was masterful to see that unfold. Some of you in this room are naturally gifted, are gifted by God to do that way. That's who by intuition and by calling are counselors and people who can come and say, let's, let's talk this out, let's work through this. And there's a way that they, they can go through that. But that ought to characterize all Christians. Write down Philippians 2, 1 to 4. Philippians 2, 1 to 4 is a great section for your family to read out loud when there's conflict going on. It's talking about putting other people's needs before our own. It goes on beyond that to point to Jesus as the example of that. Earlier in this chapter, he was talking about teachers. And some commentators think that this whole wisdom thing is just directed to teachers. I don't think that's where he's going. I think he's following in the same line with the tongue. The tongue wasn't just for the teachers. The tongue is for all Christians. And this wisdom that comes from above, that's for all believers. That's the flow that seems to be there from my perspective. But talking about teachers, not just formal, but to all, because remember, all Christians are to be ready to be able to give an answer for, for the hope that they have. Here's the advice for teachers found in 2 Timothy 2. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Some teachers love to expound on their great learning, and they want to just argue back and forth with you. It's uncomfortable and unproductive between these two people. It's potentially more destructive for all those standing around going, this isn't helping me. This isn't giving me grace according to the need of the moment. Yes, you're great with words. Bravo. Good job. Go blog about it, and I won't read it. But let's not sit here and just quarrel endlessly about this. Here's another one, 2 Timothy 2.23. says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There are times for teachers to be bold and assertive. There are many times a teacher will get into hot water because they are teaching things contrary to the natural mind. However, 
that teacher that loves the position and loves to be able to go running headlong into that doesn't seem like divine wisdom to me. That seems to start leaning towards selfish ambition. It starts leaning towards self-promotion. It starts leaning toward lying against the truth as you, as you draw attention to yourself. The last word there is that, we're, that teachers are to correct opponents with gentleness. That's a great lead-in for the next word. The next word is gentle, that the wisdom is to be gentle. Gentle is forbearing, courteous, considerate, moderate, willing to suffer wrong for the love of others. Isn't that what we read in the scriptures? Willing to suffer wrong for the love of others. Every parent knows about this. They're not going to take offense at everything. For the sake of developing their child, they're willing to suffer wrong. I wonder just as you, as you look this coming week, look for gentle wisdom. Look around and just find it. See if you can find what gentle wisdom looks like in the course of an average week. I would suspect it's a little bit like hunting for gold. I think, it's, I think it's probably not just prevalent that we see it everywhere and all the time. But hunt for gentle wisdom this week. Look at the next word. The next one is that it's reasonable, peaceable, gentle, reasonable. That is not stubborn, not demanding your own way, but open to change where needed. If it's a foolish, ignorant controversy, you let it go. You walk away. That's why it's important for you to develop firm, deep convictions. We just went through... Um, Grow to go, which was all about apologetics. It's about learn what, what, what the majors are, the closed-hand issues that you won't budge on. You'll be willing to die for these truths. And all these peripherals, let them go. Here's a great tool for you. Ready? Write this down. I've used this. I used this this week. You're in a conversation with someone. You realize this doesn't really matter. Here's where you go with this. Ready? You may be right. You may be right. I'll tell you what that does. It takes the campfire that's raging, and as you're pouring more fuel on it, you're getting a bigger log. Here's what it does. It just breaks it up. You may be right. You darn tootin' I'm right. That'll burn itself out a while. Just let it go. Just watch. It's kind of cool. I mean, there's not a whole lot to come back for that. That takes some humility. It takes pause. It takes to be slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to listen, right? Takes praying without ceasing. We talked two weeks ago in our parenting class about fighting for the heart. Every family fights. What if we as parents learned to fight for the relationship? We fought in such a way that we said, we care most about this relationship. You and me, son. You and me, daughter. That's what's most important. We're going to have conflict. But I want to fight that says the relationship has immense value. Not me winning the argument all the time. All right, moving on. Full of mercy. Mercy characterizes the life of a believer. You and I are intimately acquainted with mercy. God's mercies are new every day. So we should be walking in a way that we're quick to dispense it. It ought to flow out of our pores because we're so in tune with how much God's forgiven us that the the debt between me and my brother is minuscule. Don't worry about it. There's a wisdom that comes from people because they're walking with God that is full of mercy. And you love being around those kinds of people. You are at the ready to pour it out on your fellow man, especially to a fellow family member in the household of God. I want you to think about Solomon here for a minute. Solomon had these two women that came to him. There was an argument that broke about whose baby it was, right? Remember this scene? 
And the whole world in that time was amazed at his decision, and it was full of mercy. It was wise in that he said this. He said, why don't we just cut the child in half and give half to each, to each mom? Sounds a little barbaric today. <laughs> but one agreed. One said, nope, it's hers. Whose baby is it? Obviously the one who would give up and suffer the wrong for the love of a child. So Solomon knew, that's the baby. You're the one who's lying. That's, that's, a, that's a wisdom that's full of mercy, given by God, instrument of God, to be a blessing to people. Full of good fruits. We're not even going to talk about this a whole lot because we explored this quite well in James chapter 2. But, but being rich in good deeds is a work of the Spirit. Longing to do more and more. Longing to say, man, I, I love giving of myself. I love giving of my stuff. I love giving of my time. It's my food to do the will of the Father. That's what I'm about now. That's what I'm called to. That's my purpose. He goes on to say it's impartial. Again, another topic we covered in chapter 2. It means no favoritism. Interestingly, wisdom that comes from God truly is tolerant. Tolerant is kind of, tolerance is kind of held up as this, um, as this value, as this cultural value right now. Oftentimes, Christians are accused of being intolerant. Interestingly, though, God instructs the church and says partiality is a sin. In the biggest picture of things, God's love is the most tolerant you can imagine. And when not pushing some kind of agenda, um, there's, there's, a, there's a definition that, that can be seen to be able to see that. Let me move on. He says it's to be sincere. I don't know if you've ever been called a hypocrite recently, or if you've walked up to someone and shouted in their face, Hypocrite! That's what Jesus did sometimes. Jesus called out the Pharisees often because insincerity and hypocrisy was evidently a great affront to the truth. It was walking in a wisdom that was demonic and needed to be stopped. All right. So what are the results? Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is that talking about? I have chewed on this verse for a long time. It's a little bit hard to translate from the Greek, evidently. I'm not a big Greek. don't know it fluently. Read some different translations on this one verse sometime. It's kind of interesting what it's talking about. But let me just try to break it down very quickly. Divine wisdom is produced by the Holy Spirit. And the harvest of right living comes from a life that's been transformed by the gospel. And if you could think about it in farming terms, which I'm no farmer, but there's a certain climate, right? I saw strawberries. I saw endless strawberry fields down in Watsonville, and it made me so hungry for strawberries. Finally, on day two, I got a strawberry. It was yummy. But something about that climate, right, and that coastal air makes it really, really good for growing strawberries. What I see here is this word peace is sandwiched between this whole section. It's almost like the climate of peace is the right climate for right godly living to spring up from. Earthly solutions never really solve conflict. Again, we'll look at more of this in chapter 4. It doesn't solve conflicts with God. It doesn't solve conflicts with others. It either takes the conflict and tries to push it forward, we'll deal with it later, or it tries to bury it and shove it down, or it tries to take it and say, that's mostly your parents' fault. They didn't raise you right. Divine wisdom 
the path set up by God really deals with sin. And as I said before, it's folly to the natural mind to trust in a cross. It's folly to put your trust and your hope and to cling to the cross. Isn't it? And yet that's the path God says. And many of us in this room have said, I believe that with everything I am. I'm walking in that path. And thereby the conflict between us and God has been removed and the conflict between us and others is removed. Listen to James 3, 17 to 18 in the message. It's a, it's a different twist on it, and I want you just to listen to it. It says, real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other, treating each other with dignity and honor. I thought of a lot of different people. Read the last four chapters of the book of Acts, which if some of, some of you are on, uh, on our little journey here through the Bible, and that's, that's right around where we are, what you see is the wisdom of God in the person of Paul applied to all kinds of different situations. He's with some believers at one point, and the Holy Spirit uh, prompts this guy to take Paul's belt and to bind his own feet, and he says this. He says, the owner of this belt is going to be bound like this if he goes to Jerusalem. So all the believers, the whole church starts saying, please don't go, Paul, don't go. You're going to get hurt and all this. And here's what Paul says, kind of like with an Italian accent. He goes, hey, stop it. You're breaking my heart. Right? That's what he says, basically. It's, it's in there. You have to read it. Um, he says this, I'm not only willing to be bound for the sake of the gospel, but to die for the gospel. And so then it says, they stopped entreating him. They saw there's no changing this guy's mind. Earthly wisdom, wisdom from above. He presses on. He goes on to a boat. He tells the people, because of the divine wisdom, he says, look, uh, don't go on this voyage, it's going to turn out bad. He's just a prisoner, so they don't listen to him. So they all go. 270-some people go on this voyage. They're sailing along. It's really bad. They haven't eaten in 14 days. And here's what he says. Um, hate to say I told you so, but I told you so. I told you not to go on this. And he says that, I think, just to get some street cred, right? He's like, just listen to me now. I said it a while ago, but now listen to me. Now, here's what's going to happen. It's already been told me. An angel visited me this morning. No one on this boat is going to get injured if you do what I say. A prisoner. Earthly wisdom at sea, right? And it turns out exactly as he says. And then he goes before governors and before kings. And they look at him and, they, and, and he uses this, this logic and this wisdom. He says, look, these things have been talked about, have been done in the open. I used to be worldly wisdom. I was a Pharisee. I went after all the same stuff. God's opened my eyes. There's a whole new wisdom that I'm preaching now. One king says this, Paul, your, learning, your great learning has made you mad. At that point, Paul changes tactics and starts trying to convert him. And then the guy says, you're not going to try to convert me in such a short period of time, are you? And he goes, look, I hope that not only you, but everyone in this courtroom would be just like I am, meaning a Christian, except for these chains. Earthly wisdom versus, versus the wisdom of God. On and on it goes. I just sat here, I was just li listening to the scripture, just going, wow, there's the wisdom on display in the life of Paul. Let me give you one more example of the life of Stephen. 
Stephen's one of the guys that was picked to serve tables. He was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit, evidently, and he went and served tables. And in chapter 6 of, uh, of the book of Acts, it says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, it was a hip name at, at, the, at the time, I guess, um, as it was called, and of the uh, Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. And then it says this, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was full of grace and truth. Stephen was mighty in deed and mighty in word. Who does this sound like? It sounds like the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How did he accomplish this? He was filled with the Spirit of Jesus. That's how, it, that's how it happened. Now, here's what's powerful. The same Spirit that was at work in Stephen, the same Spirit that raised God from the dead, is the same Spirit that indwells believers today. This is the way that we walk in wisdom. We submit ourselves to the Spirit and walk with Him. Let me invite the band up. Look at the screen. There's a showdown. There's a duel in town. One wisdom starts walking one way. The other wisdom starts walking the other way. The quick draw is the true wisdom. The quick draw, true wisdom, God's wisdom, remains upright while false wisdom lays dead on the ground. Here's the challenge. Make certain you're following the right path of wisdom. Don't even take my word for it. Don't say, I'm sure Dave's done his homework. He's a pastor. He better have studied some of this stuff. I'll take his word for it. You make certain for your own soul's sake, for the sake of your loved ones that you're in charge of, to shepherd and nurture, that you're on the right path of wisdom. Here's the action item. Get wisdom. Proverbs 4, 7 says this, Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. How do we do that? Look up at me for a minute. How do we do that? Chapter 1, the book of James. We ask God, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, which we could read when you lack wisdom, because we all lack wisdom, ask of God. And He'll give it to you generously, without reproach. So ask Him. Let me just end this morning with a kind of prayer of blessing that we find in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Bow your heads and close your eyes. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Amen.